Great. Well, uh, good afternoon, good evening. Um, my name is Gad Human. I'm one of the organizers of the seminar. Uh, it's a great personal pleasure to, to welcome Catherine Hall to, to the seminar. I'm sure all of you know that she is a professor of modern British social and cultural history uh, here at UCL. She's certainly published widely uh, on Britain and the Empire. She is principal investigator in the project Legacies of British Slave Ownership. And her most recent publication arises out of that research project, collectively authored book entitled Legacies of British Slave Ownership. Uh, her title this evening is Making Race, the Work of the Slave Owners. And we will follow the usual pattern that uh, Catherine will present her paper. There will be plenty of time for questions. And we will then adjourn. And I hope you will join us for drinks next door. Catherine? Thank you very much, Gad. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, I'm going to say what people often say before they talk. And in this case, it's absolutely true that this is, wait for it, work in progress. <laughs> Um, and this is, uh, this is work that I'm working on currently, absolutely currently. And so I don't have um, a frightfully finished and polished paper. Um, I have, I'm going to present you with the work that I'm currently doing. Okay, well, Edward Long, in his famous and influential History of Jamaica instructed his readers that the intention of those who migrated to the island was avowedly that of accumulating money. But in order to make that money, they had to make race. And please, every time I use the word race, I'm using it in inverted commas, but I'm not going to do this all the time because it would be totally tedious. <laughs> so... The whole paper is about making it, how you make it, what it is. Uh, so please accept that uh, understanding of the social construction of race, but of course with its powerful social, economic and physical presence in the material world. That's my understanding of race. Well, making race was effected in multiple ways, both in language and in practice, institutionally and individually across both metropole and colony. The process by which those named as Africans became named as Negroes, who then became slaves, and racial slavery institutionalized, blackness brought into being and inextricably associated with barbarism, brute labor, and inferiority while whiteness was constructed and performed as rational, superior, civilized, freedom, and liberty-loving, these processes, and I'm stressing they're processes that go on all the time, happened in a whole variety of ways. Slave owners had to learn how to manage their human property. There was nothing inevitable about it. And they drew on a whole range of resources. On journals and adventurers' travels, travel tales of Africa and the New World. On writing and the writing and theatre of the Old World. On sermons, pamphlets and histories. In the practices of commerce and finance. In legislative acts. 
in sexual and marital practices, in patterns of inheritance, and in the everyday habits of slave trading, slave ownership, settlement, and absenteeism. So what I'm arguing is that far from race being something made and given and fixed and essential, in the, uh, the racialization of particular populations has to be in process all the time because there is nothing natural about those divisions. So if you read the histories of race, they often depend on the statements of significant racial theorists, for example. There's, you know, there's a way of writing the history of race which is about the, uh, the writing of it. Um, in, well, whether it's in Edward Long, who is constantly quoted, or many, many other sources, as if you can write an intellectual history which doesn't relate to everyday practices. And what I'm insisting on is that those moments of inscription in books are just one of the moments in the many ways in which race is constantly being produced, reproduced, and, of course, reconfigured, because it doesn't mean the same thing decade after decade after decade, it comes to mean all kinds of different things, as we would know from thinking about what racial slavery meant in the 18th century, which is the period when I'm looking at, and what racialization involves now in contemporary Britain. They are not the same form. They draw on some of the same resources, but race is always being constructed in the present, in the particular moment politically, uh, in which it's happening. Okay, well, the Legacies of British Slave Ownership Project, which I've been associated with now for a long time, um, has been focused on the British slaveholders. And uh, as you probably, most of you know, the first phase of our work focused on the compensation records. The second phase, which we are now supposedly completing, though, as with all these kinds of projects, completion is a rather long, drawn-out process. So the second phase has focused on the period between 1763 and 1833 and the evolution of plantation ownership. And my particular work for the project has been focused on the writings and publications of the slave owners and their part in both establishing colonial slavery and maintaining racial hierarchies after emancipation. So today, what I'm going to focus on is a particular man, Joseph Marriott, who was a white man engaged in different aspects of what I'm calling race-making practices. Marriott was a merchant, a legislator, a slave owner, a pamphleteer, and a father, and a husband, and a lover. He was making race in a whole variety of ways, attempting to fix the binaries of slavery and freedom with the unfixable binaries of blackness and whiteness as their markers. So Joseph Marriott was born in 1757 and died in 1824. He was a very successful West Indian merchant and plantation owner, a significant figure in the war of representation between the pro-slavers and the abolitionists in the period between the 1780s and 18... Well, he died in 1824. It went on, of course, until emancipation. He was a prolific pamphleteer and speaker in the House of Commons. 
In the mid-1780s, we know that he went to Grenada, which was then a new colony, and he lived there until 1791. His father was a doctor of rather dubious proportions and um, who did experiments uh, on the Irish, as far as I can understand it. Uh, and Joseph Marriott clearly had to make his own living, but there was some money in the family. So in Grenada, he became a merchant and he was engaged in inter-island trading. And he uh, met and married uh, a woman called Charlotte Geyer, who was the daughter of a merchant in Boston. So he was cementing links with the northern colonies. And of course, the trade is all between the Americas, you know, the, the two triangles of Britain, Africa and the Caribbean the Caribbean, North America, Britain. In 1791, he returned to England and with an inheritance of £2,000 from an uncle, he set up as a merchant in London and invested over time in plantations in Trinidad, Grenada, Jamaica and St Lucia. He was a prominent member of the Society of West Indian Planters and Merchants, which was the so-called West India Lobby, he was the agent for Trinidad from 1805 and then for Grenada. That meant he represented the planters' interests at Westminster, very important figure. Between 1808 and 1824, he was in the House of Commons. He was a significant figure in marine insurance and became the chairman of Lloyd's in 1811. In 1819, he became a partner and soon after the head of the London Banking House of Marriott K. Price and Coleman. He had a house in his later years, in his years when he was very wealthy, he had a house in Great George Street, which is just around the corner from Westminster, not far from the city, and an elegant country house in Wimbledon. He was one of the most articulate of the so-called absentee slave owners. At his death in 1824, he was said to be worth half a million. His sons, Joseph and Charles, who had entered the family business, received compensation money after emancipation of over £40,000 for 700 enslaved men and women in Trinidad, Grenada, Jamaica and St Lucia. His second son, Frederick, was the popular novelist, Captain Marriott, who some of the older men in this audience might have read their novels, though I doubt whether many of the women have their swashbuckling adventures, naval adventures. That's what he, he became incredibly popular. And uh, he continued writing after uh, emancipation, not writing the naval novels afterwards, but a really fascinating collection of novels. The one that some of you might know is Children of the New Forest, slight nods, um, which actually I have to say was one of my favourite novels as a child. It's, it's about the roundheads and cavaliers, and um, the cavaliers are the goodies and the roundheads are the baddies. Uh, anyway, his best-selling fictions argued in favour of slavery until 1833 and for new forms of racial hierarchy in the aftermath of emancipation. So he goes on doing the work of race-making, that his father has been so engaged in. Well, Joseph Marriott, the father, contributed to making race in multiple ways, as I've said. 
Now, the slave owners argued that once the enslaved had arrived in the West Indies, they were already slaves. This was not their responsibility. They distanced themselves in this way from the kidnapping, captivity and horrors of the Middle Passage. They said, not our doing. That's been done by, by the Africans and the traders. Well, of course, much had happened in that period between captivity and arrival in the slave markets of the Americas. And it's worth noting that some of the tiny amount of African testimony that we have from that period suggests that captives did not think of themselves as slaves until their encounter with Europeans. Equiano, for example, uh, tells us that as long as he was able to communicate linguistically with fellow Africans, even if they had very different dialects, he felt connected. It was his encounter with the terrors of the people that he describes as white people that changed his perceptions. Or in another case, Abaka al-Siddiq, who was an educated Muslim boy captured in 1805 and sold to an English slave ship, he published or he wrote his memoirs uh, several years later. And he saw slavery as beginning either on board ship or when he arrived in Jamaica. He didn't see his time as a captive in Africa, as enslavement. He was captured and marched to Lago, and there, as he puts it, there they sold me to the Christians, and I was bought by a certain captain of a ship at that time. He sent me to a boat and delivered me over to one of his sailors. The boat immediately pushed off, and I was carried on board of the ship. We continued on board ship at sea for three months and then came on shore in the land of Jamaica. This was the beginning of my slavery until this day. I tasted the bitterness of slavery from them and its oppressiveness. So we can see that the identity of slave, which of course is a terrible identity to take on, can happen at different points for different people. But it has to be said that much had already happened by the time Africans were delivered to the Caribbean. This was the process of the turning of African captives into Atlantic commodities. The process began at the literal, the border between land and sea. Men and women and children might have been sold once or twice already, as Equiano was before he arrived at the coast, but the factory, the slave factory, as they were called, was the site of deprivation, incarceration, and social alienation. At that point, there was no ch chance of rejoining the original community. Geographical displacement and state power underwrote the exchange of people on the Atlantic market. Men and women had become objects and could be held as possessions. The invoices and ledgers which the traders kept reduced an enormous system of traffic in human beings into commodities, quantitative facts. William Petty had argued in the 17th century 
that mathematical reasoning is the best means of judging in all concerns of human <coughs> life. Petty's political arithmetic became a potent tool. In his discourse on the order of nature, he argued that there seemed to be several species of men and there were physical and mental differences between Europeans and Negroes. So this is in the 1690s. He's writing that. Strangeness and the seeming savagery of Africans, Orlando Patterson argues, were major components in that sense of difference which provided the mental margin absolutely requisite for placing the European on the deck of the slave ship and the Negro in the hold. So that difference already has to be internalised and understood in order for that division to take place. Mathematical thinking was closely related to racial thought. There was an interdependence between fiscal gain and slavery. Human beings were priced in the trade and then traded. People became matters of exchange. There were the people who count and the people who counted, who were counted. Slaves were reduced to data in the ledgers and account books of the traders. And there's a powerful uh, description of that in Stephanie Smallwood's book, Saltwater Slavery. Merchants and planters could separate themselves from that process through what I use the term distantiation, the sense of it happening somewhere else which they didn't have to deal with. And Barry Unsworth, in his very powerful novel, Sacred Hunger, has an extraordinary description of uh, the merchant and his son, the slave trader and his son, sitting in their office, and the father, who raises the capital and organises the ship, uh, talks to his son, saying, picturing things is bad for business. It is undynamic. It can choke the mind with horror if persisted in. We have graphs and tables and balance sheets and statements of corporate philosophy to help us remain busily and safely in the realm of the abstract and comfort us with a sense of lawful endeavour and lawful profit. And we have maps. And think how maps organise the world in such particular ways. So ledgers, balance sheets, almanacs, graphs, tables, these were the forms of abstraction through which violence was organised. Well, both Emma Christopher and Marcus Redeker's work on the slave ship and the sailors has stressed the significance of the slave ship as the site for one moment in the process of race-making. Emma Christopher uh, writes very powerfully of the sailors involved in the work of turning men and women into slaves. This was part of the productive process of the ship factory. The value of people was doubled as they were moved from the market on the eastern Atlantic to the Americas. The ship was a kind of factory producing slaves. 
through the processes of dehumanization, deracination, dishonoring, no longer any public worth, nakedness, shaving, filth, terror, cruelty, naming, language, preparing for sale, all the processes that we know about in relation to the Middle Passage. In this time on the ship, Africans became Negroes and white men became white men. Emma Christopher is really interesting on the ways in which the sailors, the white sailors, who are actually appallingly treated themselves and living in the most terrible conditions, make their claims for better treatment in terms of their liberty, which belongs to them as white men. They, they are not slaves. So they distinguish themselves from the captives that they are processing, producing as slaves. So all that happens before arrival in the West Indies, and that's the way the planters and merchants in the West Indies can say, you know, they're slaves that have arrived. That's not our responsibility. It's the slave traders who are the bad people. And, of course, they make that argument in relation to the abolition of the, tra of the slave trade. Well, Joseph Marriott, to get back to my man, started out, as I said, as a merchant in Grenada in the mid-1780s, and he was at that point in his late 20s. <coughs> Britain had got the island back from the French in 1783. There is no evidence that at this time he owned planters, he was trading, he owned plantations, he was trading between islands, probably in goods and people, but we don't know. He was a self-made man. His brother became a lawyer. He went to the West Indies to make his fortune, and many of the most successful West Indians, as they were called, started this way. And remember that West Indian in the 18th century, and indeed in the 19th century, means white. West Indians are white. It's only in the 1950s that black people in Britain, in the metropole, start thinking of themselves as West Indians, not as Jamaicans or Barbadians. You know, this has been written about wonderfully by George Lamming and many others. So that, that transformation of the West Indian identity from black to white, I mean, it's extraordinary, these processes of naming and the ways in which we can understand the shifts in identity uh, in that way. Uh, well, Marriott was elected to the House of Assembly in Grenada, which tells us that he was a significant property owner because otherwise he couldn't have been elected. The House of Assembly was, at the, as the Grenadian colonists would like to think, on this small island, this was their House of Commons, and there they claimed the rights and liberties of freeborn Englishmen. Uh, and the possession of representative government was, of course, absolutely critical to the distinction between liberty and slavery. The two systems, the claim for representative government and the establishment of representative government on the, basic, on the basis of property ownership, and the slave codes, they happen at exactly the same time. So these are the two processes of race-making, the making of whiteness, the making of blackness, which are going on. So uh, the House of Assembly in, the, in Grenada was there just as Parliament was 
to serve the propertied. And the significance of the new systems of law which distinguished there was one system of law for white men and the slave codes which dealt with the enslaved. And that's the, the, the colonists took with them the systems of law. They transposed the systems of law from England to the colonies, but with one major difference, because of course slavery was not institutionalized in Britain. So the slave codes were a quite separate system of slave laws, which were established first in Barbados in 1661, and then the model of the Barbadian code was taken up and adopted in the other British West Indian <coughs> colonies, and the slave code of Barbados started with this distinguishing between Negroes who were brutish um, <coughs> and beast-like uh, and, uh, of course, white men who were rational um, and civilised. Okay, so once established uh, in Grenada, he was then able to move to London in 1791 uh, and become a West Indian merchant. So he set up a West Indian merchant house and the work of this merchant house was to deal with the arrival and sale of sugar and rum from the Caribbean. So what actually happened in the merchant house was the writing of letters and copying accounts in the counting house, going round to the grocers weekly to collect money which was due for sugar sold, doing business at the waterside when the ships came in. Every factor had to have an agent in the customs house who would work out the taxes which were due on the sugar imported and claim deductions for prompt payment, know when to petition for concessions. They also had to watch for the sugars when they came ashore, compare the invoice weights with the landing weights, have the casks examined by their own coopers to see if there were discrepancies. The factor then had to sell the sugars at the right time and crucially make loans to the planters. The chief business of the merchant or factor was to sell the sugar of his correspondents, as they were called. Those were the people he was dealing for uh, in the Caribbean. So they had very close relations with the planters, for which they received a commission. The factors also invested money for the planters. They dealt with government departments on their behalf. They got sugar machinery made in line with the instructions of the planters. They interviewed suppliers of unsatisfactory goods. They prosecuted the lawsuits of the planters. They occasionally looked out for seats for them in Parliament. They placed their children in schools and acted in loco parentis for their children. They ensured the homeward-bound sugars and the outward-bound stores, and that insurance became incredibly important in wartime. They looked for skilled craftsmen and young boys to send out to the Caribbean. They looked in Scotland particularly for bookkeepers because the Scottish education system was better. They obtained offices in customs, seats on the council. They negotiated between the secretaries of the islands and the provost marshals and those who wanted to rent offices. 
They bought articles for the planters and they provided capital, a crucial point because often this was their route into banking as it was for Joseph Marriott. The planters constantly had to borrow money because the period of turnover between the arrival of sugar and the sale of the sugar and the return of the money was very long. So the planters got into serious debt, which could also, of course, be to do with the capital investment, which was necessary for the plantation. So the merchants became crucial figures in the metropole, uh, holding the debts of the planters and increasingly, for example, the mortgages of the planters, which is why in 1833-34, if you look at the compensation records, which we've digitised, there are lots of merchants and bankers who have foreclosed on mortgages or are holding mortgages and therefore receive compensation. So lots of the people who get compensation in 1834 are not necessarily slave owners themselves. There are a whole group of others who are getting it because of the system of debt and credit. Okay, well, you may say to me, what's all this? Why are you telling us all this stuff about what merchants have to do? It's got nothing to do with race. But, of course, it has everything to do with race because the whole system is dependent on the labour of the enslaved on the plantations and the assumption that there's one kind of work for white men and different kind of work for Africans. So merchants and their clerks and all the people that they deal with are fashioning themselves as men with money and power and skills. The seat in the counting house, I don't know whether you've ever seen a representation, an image of a counting house in the 18th century, but they would have a very high seat at which the merchant and the clerks would sit. These were places of power and commerce, often, of course, with the... Um, the house of the merchant, the city house of the merchant, uh, as a separate, as part of the building of the counting house. So the women and the children, and they, uh, they didn't often take apprentices, but the clerks uh, um, being, um, having an existence in the house too, the underlings. So these merchants were dealing all the time with the city and with, with Westminster, They were members of the West India Merchants and Planters and Merchants Committee, which had their important meetings in um, a particular um, coffee house or, uh, well, yes, in a particular coffee house. They wore a certain kind of clothes. They had a certain kind of houses and gardens. This is all part of the construction of a white uh, personality, a white identity, which carries power, wealth, and authority. Adam Ferguson wrote in 1763, property is a matter of progress. (coughs) Through owning property, you could progress. You could become a man of significance. And this was the ways, this was one of the ways in which bourgeois men established their significance, established their authority in relation to that more traditional form of authority, which was the land. By their property, 18th century men were known. Public affairs were matters of propertied interests, and Parliament was there to serve the properties. 
Joseph Marriott had at least nine ships registered in his name over time, dealing mainly with Grenada and Trinidad. Um, merchants rarely owned a whole ship themselves, but they usually shared out the ownership of a ship because there was such a huge amount of capital, such a huge investment involved in it. <clears throat> Marriott, as I said, also became heavily involved with marine insurance, which was an important aspect of commerce in human property. Lloyd's was the dominant firm, and he became the chair of Lloyd's. Up to the early 2000s, his portrait still hung in the um, boardroom of Lloyd's. I don't know whether it still does. I should try and find out. Slavery probably drove directly between one-third and one-half of the business of marine insurance, which amounted to about $10 million a year, even after the end of the slave trade. So marine insurance was a very important aspect of uh, the commercial world. And, of course, there was the very infamous case of the Zong, which brought marine insurance into um, political view in a very significant way. Marriott was also involved with the development of the London Dock Company. The development of shipping, the docks and insurance were all central to the development of the slave trade and the production, distribution and consumption of sugar. And these commercial identities, as I'm arguing, produced identities which were organised on class, racial and gender lines. You don't find women merchants acting as major West Indian merchants in the city. Well, Joseph Marriott became the agent for Trinidad in 1805, and I want to say a bit about the work of these, of these agents the job of the agent was to represent the planter's interests in the metropole, to be attentive to the interests of the island, to give accounts back to the island, to oppose any laws which would burden them, attempt to gain privileges, especially for sugar, in times of war to ask questions about defence and supplies, and when disasters hit, to petition for relief. One of the aspects of state involvement in slave ownership, which has had very little attention, is the success that slave owners had in petitioning for help from the state after major disasters, fire, earthquakes, uh, um, the failure of the sugar plantation. Very significant amounts of money passed from the British government to the slave owners in this way. So it's another way of uh, understanding state involvement in um, uh, the, sugar, the sugar industry. Okay, uh, agents would also consult with the, with the home government. Uh, they would present petitions to parliament. They worked closely with merchants and with ministers. It was very difficult for the islands to control their agents given the distance between the Caribbean and Britain. And it's quite clear that Joseph Marriott became um, rather despotic in his ways of carrying on and thought that he was 
the interests of the planters as opposed to representing the interests of the planters. So sometimes there are some tensions around about that. Lots of unofficial correspondence passed between the agents and uh, the islands, as well as official correspondence. And there were committees of correspondence, formal committees of a correspondence established on the islands by the councils and the houses of assembly, which gave instructions to the agents. So this is all emphasising how they're intermediaries between the planters and merchants on the islands and the metropole. Well, Marriott was very much a leading figure in representing the interests of the British colonists in Trinidad to the home government. He was an assertive and aggressive figure. He became a very strong advocate of Governor Picton, who you may have heard of, who was involved, if any of you have read um, Jim Epstein's wonderful book on scandal, I can't remember what it's called, Colonial Scandal, anyway, is in the title. And um, Picton was um, prosecuted in London uh, for his torture of a young uh, woman of mixed heritage who had been in uh, a prison in Trinidad. It was a very famous case. Uh, and he was cleared eventually. Uh, but uh, the attack on his character was seen as completely slanderous by Marriott, who became one of his strong supporters. Marriott also became involved in a huge set of arguments with another governor, Governor Woodford. And any of you who've been to Trinidad will know that isn't Woodford Square the, the place where Eric Williams mm -hmm. and Eric Williams famously addressed the public uh, in the period um, after independence, or before independence, before independence, thank you. So that's named after Governor Woodford, who Marriott definitely did not like. So in 1805, Marriott appealed uh, against the restrictions which had been placed by the British government on the American trade after uh, the independence, after the War of Independence, um, speaking on behalf of what he called the infant colony. So remember, Trinidad didn't become a colony until much, much later than the other West Indian, uh, the early West Indian colonies. And this infant colony, um, Marriott argued, needed the support of the mother country until it was fully established uh, as a, as it were, as a grown-up colony. So this use of the language of parenthood and the mother country and the infant colony is a language that we find throughout the empire in the 18th and 19th century. When he was appointed as agent, he saw it was important to be in Parliament, so he got himself into Parliament. And he was then heavily involved in the efforts to prevent the abolition of the slave trade in 1807, he presented the petition both to the House of Commons and to the House of Lords. And he got uh, Chancellor Eldon, who was the Lord Chancellor, to present it in the House of Lords. And I have to tell you this. The Earl of Eldon is one of the most reactionary uh, Lord Chancellors that there has ever been. 
opposed to the abolition of the slave trade, opposed to emancipation, opposed to Catholic emancipation, opposed to the reform of Parliament. He's a, you know, he's an absolutely rock-solid reactionary figure and very, very powerful because Lord Chancellors were very powerful. And, wait for it, his great-great-great-great-grandson is none other than Jeremy Hunt. <laughs> I was pretty thrilled when I found that out. Anyway, Eldon, uh, who was very friendly with Marriott, presented this petition to the House of Lords, which argued that the uh, abolition of the slave trade would inevitably ruin many British subjects. The estates in Trinidad were not sufficiently stocked with Negroes, and there was the spectre of black power in Haiti. Actually, that language is used. The terrors in store if the discussions of abolition were allowed to alienate the minds of the Negroes from their previous state of subordination. The discourses of racial slavery then are being utilized in the corridors of Westminster. So this is one of the ways in which the language of race comes absolutely directly into the House of Commons down there and the House of Lords and becomes the language that people are using. This is race being made. Slavery, uh, the West India planters and merchants argued in a later petition that uh, Marriott was also involved with, was a condition of mankind. Most of the slaves purchased by Britons were prisoners of war who would otherwise be massacred. So see here the argument about how they've been saved by being brought to the Caribbean, they're being civilised by working on the plantations. This is a process of civilization which the planters are engaged in. <coughs> Slaves were Africa's exports and that planters' properties rested on grants from the crown and represented the invested capital of 70 million that had been being invested over generations. So, hence, you cannot take away uh, our rights and liberties to, these, uh, to the ownership of slaves. And, of course, in this case, it's about the abolition of the slave trade. Europeans could not labour in the tropics. The produce and trade of the West Indies helped to sustain British manufacture. These are all <coughs> classic pro-slavery arguments that are being made by Marriott. And Marriott summed up the contribution which he thought he had made to the planters and merchants. I can safely say that I have been greatly instrumental in bringing about the late favourable alterations in our colonial system. I first recommended them as a writer. I urged them again as a member of the West India Committee. I followed them up as one of a deputation from that committee to His Majesty's ministers and finally enforced them in Parliament. So he's constantly engaged in defending the rights of the planters. He became extremely worried about the position of free people of colour in Grenada. And this was particularly in the aftermath of Faden's rebellion of 1795-96 in Grenada, where people of colour were heavily involved. 
and he, he began to argue that the manumission of illeg illegitimate children was dangerous and that it was vital to maintain white supremacy. I'm going to come back to that point um, at the end. Marriott became the effective leader of the English party, as it was called, in Trinidad. They wanted British laws and a British constitution. Trinidad, Trinidad still had its Spanish laws and was governed as a crown colony by the governor. So it didn't have the representative system of government which the older British colonies had. And Marriott and the English planters were desperate to get a British colony. But this was resisted by the government on very good grounds because the, uh, there was a large uh, number of free people of colour who were owners in, the, um, in Trinidad and they said that they would be disadvantaged by the British representative system. So the abolitionist interest in the colonial office and in the government was successful in preventing a British constitution being introduced in Trinidad. So Marriott writes, uh, if we consider this subject as a question of law, that law declares the free people of colour to be a vile and infamous race, and indeed the general state of their manners and education is such that the description does them no great injustice. In other words, they are a vile and infamous race. But the government consistently refused this change in legislation, uh, as I've said, and that the, the position of the people, free people of colour and of Negroes would be worsened if a British constitution was introduced. That campaign went on right into the 1820s and was taken up by Joseph Hume, whose brother was a slave owner, but who, of course, in many other respects, was a progressive figure. <coughs> so these are the contradictions of uh, this period, not just this period. Uh, when Marriott later became an agent for Grenada, he compared the two places and argued that Grenada was more prosperous than Trinidad because it had a British constitution. And of course, actually, there's no such thing as the British Constitution, but what they mean is the system of representative government and the legal system. He then became a key player in the debate over slave registration and engaged in an extensive pamphlet war. His thoughts on the abolition of the slave trade and civilization of Africa was a lengthy attack on the African institution and leading abolitionists including Zachary Macaulay and James Stevens. Man in a savage state, Marriott argued, is naturally averse to labour, and in climates where his limited wants are almost supplied by the spontaneous productions of nature, will not be persuaded to devote his hours to constant toil for superfluities <coughs> which to him have no value. Africans were an ignorant and ferocious race, and the only possibility was disciplined labour. Marriott became a plantation owner in Grenada, Jamaica, and Trinidad, and there, like all plantation owners, his human property was registered as stock, people reduced to things and commodities. And there is work I could do there on the slave registers but I haven't done it. 
Well now, if we then think about him as a white man and his white identity, uh, he would want to be remembered for his donations to French refugees, his donation to the Patriotic Fund, his involvement in the Committee for the Relief of the Industrious Poor, so his philanthropic work, in other words, there's no contradiction at all between slave owners being slave owners and being philanthropic in the metropole. Mrs. Marriott was involved with, gave money to uh, distressed weavers in Spitalfields. She was an enthusiastic patron of the Horticultural Society of London. She gave to the St. Anne's Fund for those who are described as having seen better days, <laughs> distressed gentlefolk, in other words. Her faithful pastor dedicated a book of sermons to her. So she's a classic English middle-class, upper-middle-class lady, in other words. And she's even reaching towards connections with the aristocracy, because when they live in Wimbledon House, which is their uh, rather palatial country home, her garden became very celebrated. There are descriptions of balls and elegant gatherings, and she was visited by the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and the Duchess of Gloucester. She also bought pictures, so her pictures were auctioned at her death. So slaveholding, slaveholding and mercantile wealth going into connoisseurship, into the buying of paintings, lots of which, and this is some of the work that we've been doing on the project, uh, some, of those, some of that work goes into the National Gallery, the National Portrait Gallery, etc. There are lots of connections that we can trace. Okay, well, let me just finish with saying something about gender and sexuality. Joseph Marriott uh, had an outside family as well as an inside family. Nothing unusual in that. In 1788... His, quote, natural daughter, Anne, was born and baptised in Grenada. So it's very interesting that she was baptised. In 1790, before leaving the island, he manumitted my Negro woman slave, Fanny, together with her two mulatto children, Anne and Joseph. Now, it's really interesting that he clearly named these children Anne, which was his mother's name, and Joseph, which is, of course, his name. So the naming of the children is very significant. In 1815, Anne Marriott can be traced in the will of a Demerara planter, who was clearly quite a substantial figure, and she was named as his housekeeper, in other words, his lover, his concubine, and she was left um, an annuity of £100 a year. He also, this man also, willed a thousand pounds to each of his children by her, John, Joseph, and one unborn. Now, of course, we don't know whether that Joseph is actually the same Joseph. We can't know that. Anne Marriott is then recorded as having bought land in Demerara in 1816, and she became the owner of one elderly enslaved gardener and 11 women all of whom were hucksters and washers, labourers, bringing in an income for their owner. So Anne Marriott then appears in the compensation records 
awarded £567, four and sixpence, for 13 enslaved people. She became one of the women of mixed heritage descent who were for the most part small-scale slave owners and who made up over 40% of the claimants in the Caribbean. It looks as if there were particular opportunities for women in the Southern Caribbean, and there's interesting work done by um, Cassandra Pybus and Kit Candlin on um, one or two of the women who actually became very wealthy in the late 18th century, but this disappears in the 19th century as being uh, um, mulatto becomes more and more unacceptable. So that's his outside family. And then, remember, he's uh, absolutely opposed to the claims of these people that are so close to Africans, these infamous people, the, pe the free people of colour. Uh, yet there's his daughter and his son uh, in the Caribbean. His inside family, he died a very wealthy man. He left his wife, Charlotte, £10,000, plus an annuity of 4500 and the use of the house in Wimbledon for her lifetime. His daughters were each to receive £20,000, portions which were associated with their marriage settlements. The business was to be carried on by the sons, a typically gendered pattern which ensured the active participation of white men in business and the dependence of women. So the differential treatment of the inside and outside families is, of course, another aspect of race-making, ensuring hierarchies of colour. Well, there's a memorial to Joseph Marriott in St George's Cathedral in Grenada, and the tablet reads, Sacred to the memory of Joseph Marriott Esquire of the City of London, Merchant, Member of Parliament, and agent for this island, who during a period of the utmost importance to the welfare and interest of the West India colonists, jealously and ably espoused their cause, asserted their rights, and vindicated their character from the calumny and misrepresentations of their enemies. And beside this tablet is the figure of a mourning slave. <laughs>